Good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, January 21st, 2016, and this is episode 10 of Garbage. All right. On this week's episode, we're going to cover a little bit of what happened in OpenBSD. And um, then I think, uh, JCS, you want to do an interview. Uh, yeah, I'm going to interview Brandon Mercer. He's an OpenBSD developer. All right. Very cool. So um, I've been kind of slacking this week. So do you uh, have a little synopsis of what happened in OpenBSD this week? I don't know as far as the whole project, but um, I wrote and imported a new driver for the I2C uh, hid trackpad stuff that I'm working on. Um, the way that it uh, worked initially when I imported everything was that the mouse or the trackpad was running in like a mouse compatibility mode, which is the default for these Windows precision trackpad uh, devices as they work mm -hmm. in like Windows 8 or Windows 10 or something. Yeah. And then uh, if they conform to this standard, you can send a command to it, and then it switches into a multi-touch mode. So the packets that it starts sending are have like multi-touch finger data that needs a different driver. So I basically wrote that driver. Um, I wrote the hit layer driver that um, will probably work with USB trackpads, I guess, if one if we should find one. But they're all because um, all the hid data is the same. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the HID-MT driver, and then I wrote an IMT driver that talks um, I2C uh, that like interfaces with that. So the trackpad on my laptop is now doing multi-touch stuff, um, like two-finger scrolling, and like if you touch three fingers and click, it does like a, a right-click or a middle-click or whatever. Um, so that all works with the SYN client um, program in X. That's awesome. Yeah, and then so I did all that and imported it, and then um, Mark Katenis, uh tried it on his laptop and found out that his trackpad doesn't even conform to the standards, <laughs> so he needs an entirely separate uh, multi-touch driver written because um, I guess that's how it works in Linux. So he can write that because my trackpad works. So That's awesome. Well, he was able to make use of the other stuff that you wrote, right, the uh, hid layer? Yeah, I mean, he um, he has basic mouse stuff working with his trackpad, so he can use it in X, and then he um, uh, made a I2C HID keyboard driver. So um, JSG added all that stuff to the RAM disk, so now um, you can use an I2C keyboard uh, in the installer. Awesome. Yeah. Hopefully that's the end of this whole saga with my trackpad, and I can actually move on to... Um, some other things on this laptop. I'd like to port the Linux Ath 10K driver. I think it's uh -huh. 10 or 9. I don't remember. Whichever one we don't have, where it has like um, a ton of the, I don't even know what layer it is, but it's all in software and the driver. So like in Linux, there's like 15 files that make up this driver. Um, so it's a lot more complicated than the Ath driver that we have now, or the Ath N, whatever it is. Yeah. So then I can stop using a USB wireless um, device. And and you'll be able to build on uh, all the recent work that um, Stefan Sperling just did, right? So you can uh, make it work in uh, wireless N and all those fun new modes. Yeah. Um, I mean, the driver in Linux is um, it's all written by uh, Athros, which I guess is owned by Qualcomm now, um, and it's uh, like dual license, so it's ISC and um, GPL. So yeah. I can just take all that code and uh, make it work in OpenBSD. That's right. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and you what's going on with your uh quake playing yeah i was just goofing off uh i actually kind of took a break this week it was really nice i took a couple days uh off work and uh jumped off of irc for a while stopped checking my email and uh but i did um i was working on the y quake 2 port which uh jsg did and i took his work and of course i sent it out to get okays and he had like 15 little things that he wanted changed and um so i got those all changed and people tested things and uh stuart and uh aaron they were uh kind of giving me a lot of feedback about the port just uh making sure that it's appropriately done not thrown in there and uh i was trying to make sure that the um the whole ordeal didn't get uh kind of like lost in the in the mix of things because We've had a Quake 2 port in there forever. Uh, two years it has not worked at all. And no one's reported anything about it. And I'm thinking, well, you know, let's get a working one in there. And um, and since then, there's been some people who have kind of like, hey, we need to get a server up and play. But anyway, it's in now. Um, and I removed the um, Quake 2 port from the build. Um, and I still haven't, like, removed it from the source tree just yet. But, um, yeah, we have the new... Um, y quake 2 port and um io quake quake 3 i've been playing both of those this week and just kind of enjoying my downtime and that kind of stuff so cool. pretty slow week in openbsd yeah. um i mean uh sometimes that's just the way it goes yeah and um we are approaching a, a new release so i don't think any major stuff is going in um yeah i know i talked to the um the developer um i can't remember his name offhand who did the he was trying to uh, add a new like multi-touch system into WS cons, mm-hmm. and so there was some debate. Um, I guess it was just me basically who was pushing back and saying that I would rather keep WS cons um, really simple in, inside of the kernel, and then just have a way to export that finger stuff to X, and then um, make like a lib input port from Linux, so that mm-hmm. we can just um, tie into that stuff and not have to like write all of the multi-touch stuff ourselves but everybody else kind of disagreed and said that um we shouldn't have to or we don't want to depend on lib input and linux and all that stuff um and since this guy had already written um all of that code that it should just kind of that we should use that so that's kind of been sitting there since december and then um when i was writing this latest driver um i reviewed all of his code and figure that uh we should probably move forward with that and import it um but it's kind of late in the release cycle right now to do that so i think once um we unlock um or i guess once we lock and then unlock again uh we will import that code yeah and just so you guys know um we lock the source tree and the ports tree um for releases several months before they actually happen so uh, we can kind of stabilize things, um, usually right after lock, big changes go in, so we have lots of time to um, iron them out before the next release. And so when we talk about being in a pre-lock state, um, that just means that um, we're not going to be introducing a bunch of new wireless changes or USB changes or any of that kind of stuff. We'll be kind of slowing down and fixing bugs and getting things cleaned up for uh, the actual release uh, which will be 5.9. Yeah, and then the big uh, 6.0. That's awesome, huh? <laughs> cool. 
All right. Well, I guess that wraps up uh, OpenBSD news for this week. Um, so now we will go to our interview with Brandon Mercer. Brandon, are you there? I'm here. All right. Um, so this was actually the other part of the listener request from uh, Joris, I think it's Van Heck, uh, that wrote into us uh, last week about virtualization. He also wanted to know how uh, Brandon and I got started in um, OpenBSD stuff. So we, Brandon and I thought that we would kind of turn this into a two-part uh, series interviewing each other um, over all kinds of programming and work and OpenBSD kind of stuff. So uh, Brandon Mercer, who are you and where did you come from? Yeah, so um, I live in Ohio. Um, I've been uh, kind of brought up and raised as a... Uh, an engineer, I suppose. I've always been like taking things apart and putting things back together and trying to figure out um, how they all work and that kind of stuff. So I guess I'm kind of an engineer of sorts. Um, I also like to ride my bike quite a bit. I like to um, ride my mountain bike. I, when I was younger, I raced BMX and um, nice. Me too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then the past few years, I've been racing cyclocross. Um, as a way to try and kind of stay in shape and, um, give myself something to work towards. So I do a little bit of that. Um, and also I love to do radio controlled stuff. Um, I've been doing radio controlled helicopters for six or seven years now, maybe more than that, probably eight or nine years now. Um, and airplanes and radio controlled cars and more recently my, um, my attention is turned towards like quadcopters and stuff. And I kind of learned that, um, you know, you can do this thing where you have uh, goggles with a video screen inside and you put a camera on the quad and you can like race it through your trees and you feel like you're in star Wars and you're living star Wars. <laughs> and, uh, so I started doing that and, um, it's very, very immersive. And like, I remember flying for a few minutes and when you're learning how to do it, a few minutes is a long time, especially through trees. And, uh, as I was flying back up towards my house, I was like, who's that guy standing in my yard? <laughs> and it, and it really took me a few seconds to realize that it was me. Oh. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Um, I have, uh, yeah, a couple kids, couple cats, you know, the, the usual stuff. Uh, and one of those is the, the cat that has appeared in a few episodes of garbage. Yeah. She, uh, she makes it known <laughs> when she can see the bottom of her food dish. Nice. Uh, I suppose your kids do too. Yeah, they uh, they love. I mean, anything that I'm doing. I I, I didn't realize this, but uh, my wife gave my son a little book bag, and she's like, you know, he he put it on and he wore it like the entire rest of the day. We're talking like nine hours, and um, and then I came home from work and I set my book bag down, which has my computer and stuff in it. And she's like, oh my gosh, it didn't even occur to me. He didn't want to be like his brother. He wanted to be like his dad, and. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, my son has a, my other older son has a book bag too, but he never wears it. So, but yeah, we, we put his flashlight in there and he had a field day. <laughs> so how did you get into, uh, computers in general? I guess, um, it seems weird that we have to ask this now. It seems like, how did you get into reading? But, uh, how did you get into computers as a kid? Yeah, well, I, I didn't, um, my emphasis and focus wasn't really computers, um, when I was going to college, that was probably when I started to take an interest in things. 
But what happened was, when I was in high school, I was doing um, mechanical engineering, industrial engineering, and I was doing a lot of AutoCAD. And I'm old enough now where that was um, um, a Pentium 166 or something like that. And that was like really state-of-the-art, and you could run CAD really, really well with that. And did a lot of uh, 3D modeling and finite element analysis and all that kind of stuff. And um, when I went to college... My roommate in college was a computer science major, and uh, we had probably six or eight uh, computer science majors who were really, really, really uh, smart guys. Like, they, they really knew their stuff. And uh, so it started off as basically, like, I needed a computer for college, and I built one. And um, as soon as I got there, all we did all day long is, like, we'd go to Best Buy, and we'd buy a video card, and we'd put it in an AMD system, and we'd put it in an Intel system, and we'd kind of like game on it and see um, how it played in the various machines and how the lighting looked and how many frames it got and if it was smooth or if it was, um, you know, broken up and all this kind of stuff. And So anyway, I started to get into hardware a little bit back then, and uh, by the end of my, my first um, trimester, I was in a school with trimesters, by the end of my first trimester, I was pretty well um, in, entrenched into the hardware scheme. Um, this was back when memory was simple and CPUs were simple and you did things with jumpers on the motherboard and voltages were, you know, changed by that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, that I, I, that's basically my introduction because I was studying engineering um, at the school. So, I mean, I, I wasn't a computer science major. I didn't do all that kind of stuff. And then... Um, so yeah, I, I basically started there, building my own computers and that kind of stuff. And then when I came out of college, I was um, I was broke. I had no money. And um, I started doing computer-related stuff because it was easier to find work um, in the computer field than it was to find work in the engineering field. And in fact, one of the first places I worked fresh out of college, I was doing um, CAD work and their computer systems were having issues, and I was constantly, like, building them new machines and fixing the Internet and, um, you know, upgrading the server and making sure their software was taken care of and uh, doing little odds and ends. And then I had dabbled a little bit up until then with Linux. And, um, you know, basically after I'd worked in the field a little while, I was like, man, Linux is okay, and I wanted something a little bit more secure, and um, so I found OpenBSD um, through some auditor that came into another position that I took. Um, I was doing, like, another, like, consulting gig, and um, their proxy went down, and it was a Linux proxy or whatever, and so I took OpenBSD, and I installed it on the proxy, and um, the guy's like, oh my gosh, our T1 has never worked so fast. What did you do? And I said, I installed OpenBSD and PF. And, you know, I think they had 50 users on it. And, um, you know, it was running the internet beautifully. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is great. And then so I started working there full time. And it went from a company of 50 employees to, you know, 120 employees in a new building and, you know, a couple servers in a fallen down closet to, you know, I think we had close to 100 servers total between our two um, two facilities. Our backup facility had about 20 machines in it, and then primary facility, I think, had 
uh, 50 or 60 machines, and then we had some mainframe stuff that I didn't really do too much with. But it all kind of like I just learned by doing because that's you know I was I was thrown into it, and mm-hmm. um, that's basically how I got my start into computing and how I got my start into OpenBSD. Um, yeah. So uh, by that time, were you? mainly just using everything or were you programming by then no i wasn't writing any code um i started my career like doing just system administration stuff and and mostly on the hardware side um and it wasn't until later on in the um few years that that i spent at that company that i started to write code um we had these pdfs and they were like oh my gosh people are like downloading these pdfs and they're printing them off and they're sending them a, sending the PDF into us and we can't read it and all this stuff. And I said, well, let's just make a little Perl script. Don't tell anyone. But yes, I wrote Perl. Um, I made a little CGI and um, it served up a form to the users and they filled it out and they were able to open an account with us online. And uh, that was kind of my first exposure to OpenBSD, um, you know, on the server side. Like we, we, I think we had like a half dozen OpenBSD um, routers and firewalls, and I think we had a couple of servers. And then I started writing applications, and then um, the Perl thing quickly evolved into Java because my boss told me Java was the thing we needed to use. <laughs> and uh, so I started to learn some web frameworks in Java and rewrite the online account opening application in Java. And that's how I got my exposure into software development. Cool. So um, how did you get started? Uh, so you were using OpenBSD as a user. Um, how did you get into OpenBSD development? Yeah, so the OpenBSD development came many, many years later. Um, I'd, I'd been using it, and um, I'd, I'd had my good days with it, and I'd had my really bad days with it, and... Um, you know, been learning more and more how things worked. And um, one day I had this little tiny um, embedded board, an ARM board, and I said, I want to use OpenBSD on this thing. I want to have um, uh, a low-power machine that I can, you know, have run my solar and wind projects that I've been working on, obviously, now for a long time. And uh, so I started to read the code, and I started to really investigate how things worked and uh, started to try and make OpenBSD boot on this thing, which was a very, very um, big learning curve, I suppose. Um, but it, it seemed like once I found the spots in the code where um, I, I knew I needed to get in there and do stuff, I could make some changes and see how it, uh, what the effect was on the board. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was really um, trying to make this piece of hardware get supported in OpenBSD. And I think at the time... There was a lot of active development on that area, and uh, Dale Ron was helping me a little bit. I sent him a couple emails, and I just said, "Hey, Dale, I'm I have this uh, Pandaboard ES, and he was working on a similar uh, port. He was working on the Beagle port, which is the OMAP three version um, of this TI framework, and the Pandaboard was the OMAP four. And he's like, "Oh yeah, we want to support those eventually." And so he sent me a couple scripts and gave me a couple things to get get started. And I went back to him probably a week or so later, and I said, hey, I, I can see the copyright. 
And um, he's like, oh, good. And uh, he's like, yeah, the way you did things isn't probably the, one, the way we want to do them because we're going to support all these ARM boards. And, um, you know, if we keep doing things like this, then it'll just be terrible. Mm-hmm. So um, we kind of collaborated off and on. And um, I talked with uh, uh, an OpenBSD developer, Yuva, and um, he's like, oh, yeah, this is great, you know, and he was all excited about it. And um, so we, we kept working on things and then um, kind of heard back a little bit from Dale. And then I heard that there was this gigantic diff that was sent out for doing ARM stuff. And uh, soon after that, um, I got an invite to come, uh, you know, collaborate, I guess, with the rest of the team um, on that. So that was my first invite to a hackathon to come see what everything was all about and how everything worked. And Do you remember which hackathon that was? Yeah, it was uh, Budapest uh, 2013. It was a general hackathon. Ah, cool. And so what was uh, your first hackathon experience like? Um, a bit surreal. <laughs> um, and, and, I mean, I, I know... Uh, so first off, I'm not a traveler by any means. I'm, I'm not very uh, well cultured. And so, you know, getting a passport and uh, booking international uh, travel and then, you know, fi- figuring out um, navigation for something like that is, is a little bit uh, strange and unusual for me. Yeah. So uh, I had to go get my passport and uh, all that kind of stuff. And anyway, once I got there, things were really well laid out. I mean... Um, I shared a, a taxi with some guys when I got there. And so it was nice to have another set of, uh, skilled hands, I guess, and got to the hotel and then got to the hack room and, um, you know, met up with people and, um, it was, it, it's really kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but it's really intense. Um, the people are there to work. It's not, you know, a bunch of, um, it's not just a bunch of people getting around to, be crazy and uh, goof off. I mean, it, it, there's there's a really uh, serious, um, I guess, focused amount of work that goes on there. I mean, people take this stuff really, really seriously. And so the collaboration was good. Um, the education was good. Um, I, I was um, talking with um, JJ a lot. He... Um, he really started to talk to me about stuff, and, and I said, well, I don't understand drivers, I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I kept running into things, and I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense why we would be doing this. And he's like, oh, well, you need that kind of thing, because later on, you use it to do this. And, it, you know, things that, you know, you read the code, and you're like, I see that the code is doing this, but I don't understand why. Is this right. a mistake? Is this, is, is this an oversight or that kind of thing? So um, it was very good. Um, the the experience was was really, really a lot of fun. And just getting to sit down with the different developers and see how they work and see how they think and hear the different things that people were working on, um, it was it was a lot of fun. And um, actually, Patrick, he was um, working on the ARM stuff too, and he wasn't at the hackathon. And he was working at, um, what is it called, Genua? And... Um, so he was like, oh, look, I have the Panda board booting into user land. And I said, no, 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 that's that's not OpenBSD, that's Genua or whatever. And we were kind of <laughs> joking back and forth. And um, and so I was I was up against a couple subtle bugs that um, were keeping 
the current, um, I was, I was obviously working in, in current at the time. Um, but in current, it, it wouldn't make it that far. And so I ran a couple of things past Miode and I tried some things and I, I built several hundred kernels, which had to be copied to an SD card. <laughs> um, and then all that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, the, the whole thing was a lot of fun. And, um, I took, uh, Miode's work with, uh, a PMAP that he had done, which I think was based on NetBSD. And he had this PMAP 7 for the ARMv7 stuff versus the ARMv5. And um, lo and behold, by the end of the hackathon, I had um, I had the Panda board booting into Userland, um, full multi-user mode, uh, nice. which was which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And it was really just um, you know trying things, and and I'd say, huh, I see, I'm seeing this weird thing, and people would say, hey, did you check this? And you know, nine times out of ten, it wasn't the right thing, but people were still very excited and uh, helpful and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, were you married at the time that you went there? Yep, I was married, um, and I had, uh, my oldest son was around, and so we kind of had to explain to him that dad was gone for a while, and... Yeah. I was going to say, did your wife think it was weird that you were leaving to go to Budapest to meet some people from the internet? Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's really hard for, I think, a lot of people to understand that. My coworkers didn't understand. Yeah. Um... Well, actually, at the time, I was working at a place that was... I worked with about 30 other developers at the time, and it was... Those people were like, what? Are you serious? This is so awesome. Oh, my gosh. And, like, they knew and they got it. Where I work now, they're like, wait, I don't get it. So, wait, you're you're going to fly halfway around the world to meet with a bunch of people and work on something that you don't get paid for? Like, right. that's the general reaction. So, but, yeah, I think my wife got the emphasis of it and I, I think she picked up from me how exciting it was just my reactions were yeah. were pretty ecstatic um, and then you know the people who work on the OpenBSD project um, I don't want to put them on a pedestal but but really these people are brilliant and um, you know to be spending time with them and to be collaborating on something that they're working on as well is is really um, I take it very seriously and it was it was really um, a lot of fun to be there with them and, and working on that stuff. And sh- I mean, they were sharing in the excitement and all that kind of stuff too. Uh, so yeah, did uh, when you got back home from it, did you feel like your work on OpenBSD was different at all? Like as far as um, how you interacted with people? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, because once you meet those people and once you kind of like build a rapport with them, I think the interactions feel a little bit different because um, you can hear the inflections because you've heard them talk and right. you can hear and you can hear uh, how they think about things and you know how they approach a situation. So, for instance, if if I'm talking to one person, I know that they they draw a very distinct, clear line and then. Um, maybe work backwards from it a little bit. And I know that other people um, might like to be very iterative and are um, maybe don't have the same kind of focus that someone else does. So, you know, when you get 15 email replies back from them, one right after another, it's it's just because of that's how they think and that's how they process information. Um, so, yeah, once I'd heard um, the inflections and had good dialogue with all the developers, the emails really have a, a different meaning. And uh, I, I think in general, like when you go to conferences and when you go to hackathons, I think meeting those people, you really learn that 
I mean, most of the people who work on the project are absolutely phenomenal people, and they really mean well, and they want to help, and, um, you know, it, 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 I think it's a, it's a lot different. So, you know, just a normal person you've never met on the internet, when they send you a barky email, you just feel like, right. what on earth is that all about? But when you've met them and talked to them and felt their, uh, or like seen their thinking patterns and felt their line of thought and that kind of stuff, it, it, it's a lot different. Yeah, I was just uh, wondering, because I had the same reaction. Um, after you meet these people in person, uh, I mean, even now, I haven't seen these people in many years, but um, when I get an email from them, I can picture their face and picture them writing it. And I don't know, it just like changes the whole tone of what they're saying. And uh, especially like the people that um, maybe don't speak English as their native language, Yep. Um, you can kind of take that into account when you're reading something from them or like if they're very sarcastic in person, you can kind of read that into it. But, um, yeah, I know for me, at least that, uh, helped a lot to meet these people in person. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so what kind of work are you doing now? Um, and, uh, does it relate to, or what kind of like OpenBSD work are you doing there? Yeah. So right now I work in the healthcare industry and I basically write, software that um, manages claim files and eligibility files um, that our company gets from our trading partners and sends to our trading partners. And um, it's mostly like back-end, long-running processes and scheduling and that kind of stuff. And the OpenBSD pieces of it are um, that most of our file processing stuff all runs on OpenBSD. Um, we have databases that run on OpenBSD. We have web applications that run on OpenBSD. We have um, like application servers that run on OpenBSD. Oddly enough, we don't have any um, firewall or routing devices that run on OpenBSD. But um, my my work there is is very limited. I mean, uh, I, I might test some ports. Mm -hmm. So we we use Go there. So I test the Go stuff. Um, we run Postgres there. I run that kind of stuff. We, we have a couple things that I do that make use of the node, uh, package manager. So, um, I'm willing to test that at work for Aaron, um, just to make sure that all my stuff still works because if he builds something or releases something and then my work stuff breaks, I get grumpy. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's pretty limited. Um, and, and as far as like contributing to OpenBSD, it's not a, it's not one of those situations where um, the company is building their product on OpenBSD, so you know we need to uh, invest into it. It's it's very much on the consumer side where we make use of OpenSSH, we make use of uh, LibreSSL, we make use of obviously the operating system. So that, it, it's a pretty limited capacity right now, and um, I'm I'm actually really happy about uh, being able to use it there, mm -hmm. and um, it, it's one of those things where. Um, I, I think, I don't want this to sound very strange, but it'll sound a little strange. Where I'm at in my career, if, if I wasn't being able to use OpenBSD or use a platform that I enjoyed, um, it, it'd probably be very, very frustrating for me. It's just, um, one of those things where I, I get about five phone calls a week where people say, Hey, we have this great.net application that we would love to have, you know, another team member or whatever. And I'm like, I don't want to write .NET. I don't want to use Visual Studio. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to write stuff in C Sharp and .NET and IIS and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's actually, I guess from a personal perspective, um, it, it has value to me because it kind of keeps me sane 
And um, on the flip side of that, from a business perspective, I think uh, the business benefits greatly from it. If you could see all the Java applications that we have that don't run reliably, that don't run on OpenBSD, um, you know, I think it's like one of those things where if the developer or the sysadmin does a good job, no one knows why they exist there. Right. And that's kind of where the OpenBSD stuff is right now. Um, no one knows really that it exists or why it exists because it doesn't cause us any grief. And yeah. that can't be said of the other platforms that we're using there. So, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what we're making use of it for. Uh, it's a pretty limited capacity. And it, also, too, just so everybody knows, um, uh, my current employer is not one of those people who are like, capable or in a place to make donations to open source projects um so that's not something like they don't sponsor me to go places they don't um all that kind of stuff there's a bit of a separation there between uh the company goals and my personal um ambitions with openbsd so there's a little bit of a divide mm -hmm. there did you introduce openbsd there or was it already there when you got there I did introduce it. Um, it. It was at the time, so we had a bunch of different machines. I mean, we had SUSE and CentOS and Red Hat and some Solaris and some Open Solaris, and we had an HP mainframe that they just migrated to Linux and a bunch of Windows and some other stuff. And we were running into issues with Linux and all these Python things that I was building at the time. And so I just was doing my development in an OpenBSD virtual machine. And my boss was like, well, why don't we just throw that out there? That works. It seems mm -hmm. to be working fantastic. And so um, we did. And, you know, the sysadmin at the time, he and I didn't see eye to eye on anything at all. And, uh, but this was one thing that he said, I love OpenBSD. Nice. Um, he, I don't think he knew a thing about it, but he was like, <laughs> I love OpenBSD. And, uh, yeah, so he put that machine out there. And, and again, we've had a couple sysadmins, um, come and go. And they were all really open to the idea. But, um, that, that machine, obviously something about it, they, they never cared, um, that we had OpenBSD. And so it's grown quite a bit. Uh, our new sysadmin was a, uh, FreeBSD admin out in Silicon Valley, and she loves um, she loves OpenBSD, and she's like, it's so cool that we have, you know, you to kind of maintain those systems, and she doesn't have any grief with them. So I did introduce it, and I did kind of keep it cultivated there, but it was um, in a in a rather fertile ground, I suppose, because everyone was open to it all along the way. Yeah, cool. So. Um... Maybe some more technical questions. What is your like uh, work environment like uh, as far as um, hardware and software and all that? Yeah, so the the work environment is um, data centers that are offsite, and we have um, a bunch of big SANs that uh, run on HP hardware, and we have um, VMware ESX hosts, and I think those are Dell somethings, and um, and so everything that we have is virtualized. That we don't have any physical servers anymore, uh, with the exception, I think, of maybe one uh, administrative uh, machine that 
doesn't run on the virtualized infrastructure so that you can manage the virtual infrastructure. Um, and then that's the like production and test side of things. And um, my local side where we do development is I have um, a Windows desktop running on some like fancy... Um, no, it's not fancy. It's like a Dell workstation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I run um, VMware workstation on there. And I have a couple OpenBSD VMs that I run all the time. And that's where all the development happens. And uh, that's where... Um, so now I have my intern. We have uh, another health pack developer. And, and she um, she logs into my OpenBSD machine. And she's running regression tests against her uh, health pack stuff from my machine. And then we have a Salesforce guy who um, works on the API that I built in OpenBSD. And... Um, we set him up, like he, he came to Ohio, he's located in Arizona. He came to Ohio. We set up the entire Go application on his Windows machine. And he's like, Windows is absolutely a horrific development environment. <laughs> this is like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And, um, you know, up until then I tried to show him OpenBSD a little bit and he's like, oh, I just need to get the environment set up. We get him the environment set up on Windows and he's like, I can't do this. So um, we created another account on my VM on uh, one of my workstations, and he SSHs into there, and he can run the application. He has his own source um, repository in there, and, you know, he sends me diffs, and I review stuff, and I send him diffs, and he reviews stuff. And um, we actually, those those VMs are uh, pretty heavily used. I'm, I'm surprised, uh, you know, we get so used to, like, oh, spin up another VM for another developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be like the culture and the norm. And if you're running something like a, a .NET application, you know, okay, in order to run .NET, you need IS and all this, all this, all this other stuff. So you need like a VM per developer. But for what we're doing, we just um, serve up all the applications on a different port, so we can all run all of our stuff at the same time on the same virtual machine, and it doesn't even blink. I mean, we we run just tens of thousands of transactions through there an hour and it you know we we run it we hit it it, it, i mean it's probably 50 times the amount of workload that our production environment sees just because of the amount of testing that we do Mm -hmm. and it it just flawless i mean openbsd just runs great in there um i i don't really i mean i don't really like running a vm i'd like to run it natively but it, it is a little bit more convenient when you can like stop your virtual machine clone it, do some upgrades, test some things, and then blow away the clone when you're done with it. Sure. Then it is to, like, risk not having a, a functioning workstation when you do an upgrade and things don't work or it's going to take you seven hours to build all the ports you need because packages are out of sync and you're running snapshots or something like that. So, um, yeah, that's that's basically the, the infrastructure there. And um, for the most part, I think it works well now. But early on, I think the people who were running it just didn't, um, they, they weren't familiar with the scale of technology that they were getting into. And um, it was early on when kind of VMware didn't really establish a good working relationship with their storage vendor, and they didn't really have good understanding of how the backup schemes needed to work. Now VMware is like, oh yeah, run this SAN, run this backup solution. And then your entire infrastructure basically just works. And I think maybe I'm a little bit out there in saying this, but I think that 
with virtualization, you kind of need to have a stack like that, or it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. When you uh, are programming in like Go and stuff for work, um, are you doing it in Windows or inside the OpenBSD VM? Yeah, I'm using OpenBSD. Um, I actually run the OpenBSD VM in X, so I have two monitors, and Windows is on my one monitor. And then I run OpenBSD with the X window system in my other monitor, and I enjoy that because it's really hard to go and do what I'm telling the, uh, you know, like my intern and the other folks to do, like, hey, pull up a browser in your Windows machine and pull up this putty window. Um, it's not quite as efficient as when you have a full-fledged desktop mm -hmm. or window manager running uh, and you're able to, like, you know, check your email and pull files and all that kind of stuff. So I actually run OpenBSD inside of X and all that kind of stuff in my in my Windows machine. And really, Windows is just kind of like a shell. It's just, I mean, I, I could do all of my day-to-day -day tasks completely inside of OpenBSD without having to fire up, you know, Outlook and that kind of stuff. But um, there's there's, like, a little bit of an advantage to having it over there for when I want to test stuff in IE because our end users might be using IE. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's generally how I do things. Cool. Uh, what kind of, or what window manager do you use? So I recently changed. Um, this is kind of crazy, but I went from uh, using Fluxbox since, like, 2001. Mm-hmm. And uh, for whatever reason, I was like, all right, Flux, Fluxbox just isn't cutting it. And, and it, there was something it wasn't doing that I wanted it to do. And anyway, I started looking at uh, other window managers. And I played with uh, Spectrum. I played with DWM. And I played with... Uh, there was another tiling window manager, and I can't remember what it is. But I wound up... Um, using DWM for like two or three weeks, and I was like, oh, this is pretty nice. And then I went to upgrade my machine, and with D with DWM, you actually compile your configuration of the window manager. And so, like, when you build the port, you really get, like, their stock configuration again. And I was like, all right, that's not going to work. So <laughs> I uh, switched to um, the Spectrum. And I've been using that ever since. And the only thing that I've run into with that is uh, playing Doom 3 and Quake 3. <laughs> <laughs> I had to set up some quirks um, because, like, the screen will go black and you, like, you know, can't do anything or whatever. So mm. I uh, set up some quirks so that Quake and Doom 3 can play in full screen mode. And uh, they, they want to be running in the first uh, virtual desktop that you have there. Um, but yeah, I love the, I love the windowing manager. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. I've, I've got the keyboard shortcuts. I, I very seldom use the mouse. It's all, I launch a terminal, um, with a shortcut. I launch my browser with a shortcut and I'm able to move things around and, uh, I'm really, really pleased with it. Really, really enjoying that. So yeah, that's my, that's my, um, my desktop and window manager setup. Yeah. And, uh, what editor do you use? I am a Vim guy, yeah. and uh, I actually have more recently, within the past year or so, got my Vim configuration right where I like it, and I think, uh, I guess it was about two years ago now, I, um, I know syntax highlighting drives some people crazy, but for me, I use syntax highlighting, 
in everything that I do. And um, I have some Go plug plugins that run. So when I save the file in Vim, it runs some checks on the file. Mm -hmm. And it does some formatting. And basically, I did that because I didn't want to have any um, contests with people about where parentheses go and where curly braces go. Right. Um, so it just runs go format on your code every time you save the file and um, keeps things looking consistent, which I really appreciate. Um, got the color scheme that I liked. I got the, um, uh, what is it, when, um, the vertical split. So when you're looking at files side by side, I have that uh, working the way I like it too. But, uh, yeah, that's my editor. Um, I've never... Okay, I have a... Yeah, uh, all right. <laughs> I used MC Edit a long, long time ago. I don't even know um, what that is. Yeah, so it's the Midnight Commander. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I loved it. I thought it was great. Like, And how it happened was um, my naive little self was searching for how to do something on the Internet, and somebody was like, you can use MC to, to edit this file. And I was like, MC, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and uh, so then I was like, all my machines for like the first six months needed to have MC edit on them. And uh, I kind of learned pretty quickly that was a little bit naive. <laughs> and it was kind of a rubbish piece of software. And uh, I used uh, Vim shortly thereafter, and I've never looked back. So Yeah. I know people that uh, have used Pico for a very long time. It's like, mm -hmm. how can you get anything done with that? But uh, anyway, um, yeah. and so your setup at home when you're doing more OpenBSD-focused stuff, is it pretty much the same setup? No virtualization at home um, uh, yet. I mean, until VMM is, is kind of rearing and ready to go. Um, at home... It's very, very simple. I, I love simplicity. I strive for simplicity. It's very much the same thing. It's just instead of being inside of a virtual machine, it's all running on bare metal. Um, I have my APU2 running all the time. I have a big tower that I run all the time and uh, my laptops that I do development in. Uh, usually the way it works is I'll tinker around with something on my laptop and then I'll use uh, Mercurial to sync source code back to the the main repository and um that's kind of like my um safekeeping or deployment center or whatever you want to call it where the applications wind up living and uh i might do some development on there every once in a while i'll ssh into there from something to do uh some edits or you know make an update for something or make a note about something that i found and you know i might pull those changes back to my laptop every once in a while if, if that's something that I've done. But, um, yeah, that's my setup at home. Very, very simple. We don't, I mean, we don't require a whole lot uh, here. Um, ooh, I, I have a rant, a little bit of a rant. Um, so you get this one for free. Um, so there may or may not be a guest wireless network that when 10 or 15 people use it, um, it completely incapacitates the rest of the internet and um and and so let me give you a little background i'm not picking on people who configured this i'm not um i'm not like calling them out on anything but the hardware vendors these days who produce like uh linksys firewalls and um you know gateways and things like that those things are absolute junk and um 
I mean, okay, to give you, uh, I have the same internet here at home that I have at work. 50 megabits down, 5 megabits up. Don't confuse that with megabytes, or I'll make fun of you because one of our sysadmins did that, and I called him <laughs> out on it for like a week. Um, but anyway, I can have 20 people here at my house, um, you know, playing games on the network, watching YouTube videos, uploading pictures to Google+, Plus, uh, uh, Netflix, YouTube, all that kind of stuff rolling at the same time. 20 people, no big deal, right? It, it doesn't even blink. My internet just works, okay? And this is, I guess, more a testament to OpenBSD's firewall than it is uh, a rant about anything. But at work, when you have these commercial solutions, um, sometimes they just don't cut it. And um, there's a situation where the wireless access point at uh, some place that I know about um, just incapacitates the internet when 10 or 12 people use it. And I think that that's... Um, kind of really poor. So, anyway, I won't digress too much into that, but uh, OpenBSD's PF, if you guys aren't using that, um, you should be using that. <laughs> you have um, prioritization of acknowledgements built in. Um, probably all of you kind of have an idea what that is, and, it, and it's so trivial, but honestly, I'm amazed every time I get on a commercial product that doesn't do it and doesn't have it. Um yeah, it's it's basically when you download something from the internet or you're streaming something from the internet, they send you a packet. You send an acknowledgement that you got the packet, and that those acknowledgements going back need to be handled by the firewall with a high prioritization because if the server doesn't get an, an acknowledgement in a timely fashion, it'll resend the packet. And so what winds up happening is when you're downloading something big, instead of downloading the file you're getting the server retransmitting the same packet three or four or five or six times because it hasn't received your acknowledgement. Now, uh, on OpenBSD, this just works. It, it just, everything just freaking works. And if you've never uh, got into PF and seen, like, the queues and the prioritization and the bandwidth shaping and the borrowing and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's dead easy. And um, huge thank you to TJ who has been uh, updating the PF guide on our FAQ. That That's awesome. But anyway, these big commercial solutions don't do that. So you have 12 people all trying to stream data down, and their acknowledgments aren't being prioritized back, so there's like this huge uh, amount of retransmits that are just killing the, 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 um, the Internet at whatever place decides to use those particular things. And... Um, so anyway, commercial vendors, they got to get this stuff. They just they don't have it, and it doesn't work. And um, I'm really thankful for uh, um, the people who, who made PF work so awesome because it, it just blows my mind every time. Like, uh, we have people there, and they're like, man, your Internet's fast. And I'm like, I, don't, I just take it for granted, <laughs> right? You know, and it just works for me. So, But anyway, non-technical people observing that um, and... Uh, I, I I guess I kind of take it for granted. So anyway, that was my free little rant about firewalling. All right. Um, and I guess my final question is, uh, where did your Twitter handle come from? Um, so you remember uh, CyanogenMod? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so CyanogenMod is um, one of the guys who started working on Android, and he was making his own version of it, and... Honestly, um, 
a long time ago, I was like working with on hacking his stuff up for these phones that I really liked. And, um, it was, I was kind of making fun of him. My nickname in college was no mercy. And, uh, it was what I used when I played games. So, um, I decided that, uh, I'd make a, a play on cyanogen mod and no mercy. And, um, that's how I came up with no mercy mod. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I'm really bad at picking names for IRC because it's usually like, oh, that one's taken, and I just type something ridiculous. And then people are like, I really miss when you were Brandini. And I'm like, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was because I typed my name, and it was already taken, so I, I don't know, something silly. I don't remember what I was looking at, but it was like old chat logs or something, and something came up where I was saying that you had like the best email address when I first <laughs> saw it. <laughs> Oh, all right. So, yeah, my email, yeah, is uh, your computer pal, <laughs> and uh, and so, um, when I was in college, I was like building people computers. Like, it's the dumbest thing in the world to think that you're going to go to a technical college and uh, build people computers. But anyway, I set up an email account at the time uh, to to be <laughs> people's computer pal to help them out with their computer stuff, and uh, that's what I. <laughs> oh, I see. So there was no like sarcasm in that. <laughs> no, unfortunately. Because <laughs> I opened our first show with uh, Hello Cyber Pals because I like uh, the term Cyber Pal. I don't know. And uh -huh. so I just figured when your email address was your computer pal that you were kind of uh, doing that lightheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately, it was when I was, uh, I mean, I, I picked that email mm, 20 years ago. <laughs> so, I mean, it's been a long time and the internet was a completely different place, so. Uh, hopefully I'm a little bit more cultured by now, but <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. All right. Uh, well, was there anything else you wanted to uh, talk about in this interview or any questions that I would you would like me to edit out and then uh, say them as if they came from me? Uh, no, I, I just think it's uh, kind of interesting to reflect on those types of things. Um, sometimes I think we get a little bit lost in a rut, and I think it was very fun and enlightening uh, for us to do that. So I'm looking forward to, uh, interviewing you uh, on next week's episode and hopefully we'll learn a whole bunch more about you. All right. Uh, well, that is all we have for this, uh, interview and this episode. Um, so if there's anything you, the listener would like to hear us talk about, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at garbage FM, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. And, uh, Brandon, we know where people can find you, but why don't you tell them again? Yep, I'm on Twitter at, at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. Right, and I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. <laughs>